Well, this morning we wrap up our three-part series, Secrets, and we're going to be looking at the secret called shame. And some of us can pull that up almost instantaneously, that in the back of our hearts, in the back of our heads, deep within our souls, there is this, there is this moment, there's this event, there's this thing that, that produces, produces shame for us. And it doesn't really matter how we're doing on the outside, it can, it can still be there. And just because on the outside things look good doesn't necessarily mean that uh, secret shame uh, isn't keeping you up at night. It isn't weighing you down. I mean, again, it, it doesn't matter what the external looks like. We could be, in a sense, at the top of our game, if you want to call it that. And yet, deep inside, there's still this hurt. Uh, just watch this individual, uh, Jason uh, Castro, as he is at his top of his game. Well, I heard there was a secret call that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift And the baffled king composing, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah Yet no matter who we are, no matter what the outside looks like, there can be secret shames that actually haunt us. And that is the case with uh, Jason. Oh, this is so weird. This has been like a big secret, like awkward secret. story you know the show was two and a half months of of intense stuff that was cool it really easy to stay busy but then as the tour started and we got going I just found myself more and more and just like a lonely lonely place and the point that I was at was um, a place where I was finding myself uh, <sighs> I hate saying this it's embarrassing but um, it was bringing me down it, I would it was keeping me depressed. I wasn't sleeping at night. I would stay up all night out of shame, and then I would go. Having a secret just eats at you, like, so much, you know, and you feel like a liar. You're trying time. to have fun, but you really can't even have fun because, you know, you've just. I purposely didn't uh, let you in on what his secret is. Uh, I love the uh, video site, uh, the website says, says, I am second. And you can go there on your own, not right now, uh, but you can go there on your own and uh, search that out and, and hear what he has to say. But uh, what, what he's getting at is something that Solomon got at, 
And we've been talking about that again for the last few weeks, and it's this. Solomon knew this firsthand. As we looked at it last week, his father had a secret, and eventually it went public, and he had to wrestle with all of that. And Solomon saw firsthand that whoever conceals their sin, their secrets, does not prosper. And that idea of prosper is does not live well. Outside, things can look great, but inside, there's a torture, there's a torment. It just, it just weighs us down. And Solomon saw that as he heard the stories about his dad and his mom, and he realized that when we conceal, when we hide, when we pretend that it doesn't exist, it doesn't mean we need to go on TV and do I am second videos and tell all our stuff. But it does mean that we have to come to terms with there's things in our life. There's activity in our life. There's things we've been involved with that can create shame. And, and that, that's okay that it created shame up into a point. But the person who ignores it, the person who stuffs it down, pretends it doesn't exist, goes on with life, finds that, in a sense, it's almost like they're, they're bleeding inter internally. And bleeding internally is, I'm not a doctor by any means, it can be worse than bleeding externally. At least you can see it. At least you can figure out what to do. When I had my fall, uh, the reason they airlifted me right up to uh, Strong's Hospital was because they were worried about internal bleeding. If, if they hadn't worried about that, I would have gotten a, a, an ambulance ride up there, but they were worried about that, and, and they were very concerned about that. Internal bleeding is not a good thing. And likewise, in our soul, in our heart, in our mind, in our spirit, however you want to say it, when we conceal that and we don't come to terms with whatever that thing is that creates that, that secret, and we don't come to terms with it, we don't prosper. Outside, we might prosper, but inside, we're torn up. Inside, we're having fun, but we're not having fun, just like Jason said. And so as we think about secrets coming to terms, we've talked about addictions, uh, we've talked about sexual secrets, and now we're kind of bringing it all together with just this idea of what do we deal with shame and how do we deal with this. And Solomon goes on to say this, the other side, he says this, he says, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy in all of us no matter who we are, whether we're uh, just kicking the tires of faith and we're trying to figure out if it has anything for us, uh, whether we've been following Christ for a little while or a long while, all of us need mercy. And all of us need an infusion of mercy on a regular basis because we haven't arrived. We're, we're not perfect. Uh, we do still sin. We still do offend God with our actions for various reasons. And when we leave them inside and we let that guilt go on and on and on until it becomes shame and it just stays at the shame place, it, it in a sense dries up our lives. See, we need mercy. And we need mercy first and foremost, as we're going to discover from Psalm 51, from God. 
We need his mercy. How we unconceal our sin, our secrets, is varied. Uh, sometimes there is a moment for, for public, for, for confession. Sometimes it's just a friend. Sometimes there's no way to, 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 to close the circle, and so we just leave it in God's hands. And I can't tell you which expression of that is right for you. Maybe you need some counsel. Maybe you need some talking, but, but, but God will lead you. But the idea that you act that it doesn't exist and you just stuff it deep will eat you up from the inside out, and it will be a slow bleed. David writes this, some say to this whole situation with his situation with Bathsheba, he says, when I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? And that shame is just there. And it's drying up the joy of your life, my life. Cindy and I had only been married maybe um, three months when what I'd say is a, a secret shame started to weigh on my heart. And I don't know if I was, was my senior in Bible college, so I don't know if it was a chapel speaker. I can't re remember what the catalyst was for me to, for me to remember these things. And I realized that when I had been in high school, I hadn't been, I want to say, completely honest with the hours that I would write down when I would work on this farm. I was not honest, completely honest. Isn't that funny how we try to soften it? It was wrong. I wasn't honest. And occasionally, I would, I would make my hours more than they were supposed to be. And all of a sudden, this is like, you know, I don't know, four or five years later, and I, I, I feel the weight of that. I feel the shame of that, and uh, I, was, I was totally embarrassed by that. Here I am thinking about being a pastor or just, just as a Christ follower. I'm just weighed down by that, and so eventually I, I got up the courage to say something to Cindy, and I didn't know what she was going to, you know, we'd only been married a couple months, so she's going to think, wow, look at the lousy bum I married, you know, he's a lying, cheating, whatever, blah, 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 and and as I, tried to, as I tried to come to terms, I talked with her, and she was very gracious, showed me mercy, if you will, uh, came to the point where I said, I've got to try to kind of figure out how much money I owe uh, this farm. And, and, you know, and I, was, I was like a second son or something like that. Uh, uh, my best friend was Vinny, and, and so, you know, so I'm like, you know, they, they obviously have no idea, but there was a secret shame. And in this case, I first had to talk with the Lord about it and how to deal with him. And, uh, uh, you know, again, I, I can't, this isn't prescriptive from everybody. It's just to give you a reference point. So I really felt that I had needed to make financial restitution to them. And, uh, you know, I was a Bible college student. Cindy taught at a, a, a private little Christian school, so she didn't make much money and all of that kind of stuff. So... So somehow, I, back then, we didn't get paid that much an hour, but uh, I came up with the fact that I, that I needed to write them a check for $300. And that was, that was big, big bucks. And so that was actually, in a sense, the easy thing. The hard thing was to bring that check to my friend. And I can remember 
going up to Vinny, and I, maybe I was a little wimp. I didn't deal with his dad. <laughs> I said, Vinny, uh, I got to be honest with you. Uh, you know, you know, I'm a Christian, and you know, and, and uh, he was a person of faith, but not not uh, the same tradition I was. But I, I said to him, I said, you know. Uh, you know, it's really weighed heavy on my heart, and I feel God's brought to my attention. I need to make this right. And there were, there were times where I wasn't uh, honest with my hours. Uh, you know, I'd say I worked 18 hours, and I actually, you know, only worked 15 or whatever it was. And I said, I don't, I don't know how to, how to do that, but uh, to, to make this right, I, I have a check for you. And I gave it to him, and he looked at me, wow, and he and he goes, you were that dishonest? No, he's just like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> How many you know? Uh, and um, he said, no, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. And I said, no, no, I, I've, I've, got, I've got to do this. And so um, I did that. And what was amazing is verse 5 of Psalm 34 just rushed into my life. Then I let it all out. I said I'd make a clean breast, uh, get it off my chest of my failures to God. Suddenly the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved. My sin disappeared. And I'm so happy I dealt with that shame. I dealt with it. I got it behind me. And again, uh, you know, it, there, are, there are situations like that that happen in in theory, in, in most of our lives, where we need to make it right, there, there's some shame in our life. Because when we let it just ride and ride and ride and ride, it steals the joy from our life. I love what uh, Paul writes in Ephesians. He said, it's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense, immense, huge in mercy, and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin, dead lives, and made us alive in Christ. And that is just unbelievable. It doesn't mean what you did, what I did, doesn't count, didn't have consequences, uh, wasn't wrong. It doesn't, it, doesn't make, it doesn't minimize that, but it does release it from us. And David has a great example of somebody who was released. And uh, when we know the rest of his story in community groups, you can read through it. We're not going to read through the whole story of him. But when you take a look at that, you're, you're going to see that his story, it is outrageous. It is outrageous. But somehow, God in his mercy, in his grace break through into David's life, freeing him from that. There would be consequences. There would be consequences. His family really was never the same after that. There was issue after issue after issue. His, his, little, his little boy that was born out of wedlock, in a sense, uh, doesn't make it, and that's a part of the punishment. And we go, that's so outrageous. But David didn't have to live with his shame. His shame could actually be a tool to cause him to lean into his relationship with God rather than lean away from it. And all of us in a moment like this, uh, there's probably some things coming into our minds, some, some heartache, and, and, and we've got to make some quick decisions. Are we going to lean into God? Or are we going to cause it to 
lean back? Are we going to uh, turn up the volume of noise in our life so that uh, as we leave this place, we kind of let it just fade off like a, a dream in the morning? Uh, we've talked about this every once in a while that, you know, you have a dream and all of a sudden you wake up in the morning, you remember the dream pretty vividly, but as the day goes on, you just remember you had a dream. And then sometime it's gone. Two days later, you can't remember what it was, but you remembered you had a dream Sunday night or Saturday night. And sometimes in these moments when God is speaking to our hearts, when he's saying, release your shame, we kind of just let it kind of float out there. And before you know it, it's kind of just off the table. And uh, we still have that slow bleed taking place in our soul. This isn't in your notes, but... I came across this statement, mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. And you see, God offers that to us. God offers us mercy, and that's not getting what we deserve. We don't deserve mercy. I don't deserve mercy, none of us. And it really doesn't even matter what the weight of the thing that's producing the shame is, but God wants to offer that mercy, and we're going to talk about how that works in just a couple minutes, but, and, and grace is getting what we don't deserve, grace getting that, receiving that, it's, it's because of what Christ has done for us that we have this grace. David, in another place, uh, Psalm 103 says this, God is sheer mercy and grace, not eagle, easily angered. He's rich in love. He doesn't endlessly nag and scold nor hold grudges forever. He doesn't treat us as our sin deserves nor pay us back in full for all our wrongs. As high as the heaven is over the earth, so strong is his love to those who fear him. And as far as the sun rises from the sunset, he has separated us from our sins. As a parent feels for their children, God feels for those who fear him. He knows us inside and out. At first, when I read that, good, he knows me inside and out. And then it's all like, oh, bad, he knows me inside and out. But the passage starts with God is sheer mercy and grace. So what do you do with those things? You know, we talk about guilt and guilt is I did bad. And actually, I, I like the fact that I feel guilty at times. I Hopefully, it is God-generated conviction, but I like that fact. That's a warning uh, light on the dashboard of my life. Talked a little bit about this last year when we did a road trip, but the idea that it's a warning signal. So it is good when I do something or don't do something, and all of a sudden I go, ooh, I feel bad about that. I, I, I did bad. It, that, that's a good thing because maybe it will register with me. It's the same thing. It's a good thing that if you put your hand on the stove, you go, ouch. It would be a bad thing if you put your hand on the stove and there was no ouch. That, that would be a bad thing. Your hand would just uh, start cooking. And, and for us, it's a good thing we feel guilty. So hopefully our lives aren't cooking. We do have that slow bleed and, and we realize it. But there's a little difference between, again, this idea of guilt and shame, and we can get to the point where we feel so much shame, and we can't even connect the dots. We just feel totally uh, just off and, and down and all of this. We, we feel so much shame that we, we, we say, I am bad, and, and I'm, I'm not worth anything, and I don't have anything to offer. 
And when we get into Psalm 51, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So if you have some questions about that. But, but this idea that just, just I am worthless. I should be, in a sense, written off. Uh, just some ideas. You know, we think I'm defective. I'm damaged. I'm broken. I'm flawed. I'm dirty. I'm ugly. I'm impure. I'm disgusting. I'm unlovable. I'm weak. I'm pitiful. I'm insignificant. I'm worthless. I'm unwanted. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Ooh, isn't that great? But when we live in shame, when we become captive by it, these themes, these ideas uh, hold us and, and empty us and deplete us. And as a Christ follower, if you've said yes to Christ, if you've placed your trust in him, God says, I will step in. My son stepped in. So you could step out of that in a sense. It doesn't mean you'll live a perfect life, but it, doesn't, it means that you don't have to live under the, under the pressure of that shame, of these kinds of ideas, because Christ paid for that. Isaiah writes, uh, fear not. He's writing that to Israel after they just really messed up and they had basically blown it. They had this great thing going with their nation and things were just wonderful and they just, they just blew it. They stepped away from God, a lot of shame. And, and this is what Isaiah writes to them someday. Fear not. You will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame. The idea to me is that no longer do you have to be defined by that. It doesn't have to be your definition of who you are. You see, Christ frees us from that. And that is just unbelievable. That, that is worth everything. Because all of us have a story. All of us aren't free from having some story, something in our past, something we're currently going through, and it, it, just, it, just, it just weighs us down. Now, it's interesting, the, the distinguishing or the, the tipping point really is this idea of repentance. And when we look at uh, King David, there's two kings. The King David is the second king of Israel. There was another king King Saul, he was the first one. And we see two kings, yet two kinds of repentance. Uh, we, see, we see this idea that, um, that uh, David has something different happen than Saul. Saul is sorry at times. Uh, Saul is sorry, David's sorry, but there's something different. Saul is out, David is in. David isn't any better than, than Saul in many ways. I mean, when you think of uh, the situation we talked about last week, uh, da David, that, that, was, that was worse than what Saul had done. And so yet there's two kings, but two kinds of repentance. And when I think of repentance, I like to think of two kinds of repentance. I like to think of uh, decaffeinated repentance, and I like to think of caffeinated repentance. So because of that, I have to show you a mean video Hello, that was sent me this week. my old friend. I've come to order you again. I hear the grinding of espresso beans. I need a double shot of pure caffeine. And the indie band 
on the speaker soothes my brain So I'll remain within the sounds of Starbucks Trying to brew my own at home But felt so quiet and alone I need to be amid the morning rush where the leather chairs are soft and plush And I'll drink a grande cappuccino with a pumpkin scone And charge my phone Listen to the sounds of Starbucks It goes on, you can find the rest of that later on. But when I think of repentance, two kinds. First of all, there's that decaffeinated repentance. It's actually a different word for it in the original languages, and it conveys a change of mind, such as to produce regret, but not necessarily a change of heart. Smells like it, tastes like it, but it's decaffeinated. A couple times we've uh, made the mistake of serving caffeinated uh, coffee at our community group in the evening. And uh, one of our members uh, a couple days later says, what was going on with that? I was up till two in the morning. You see, uh, they were drinking caffeinated and it engaged their heart. <laughs> and they were up all night. I'm happy they didn't call me. But uh, decaffeinated doesn't engage the heart. It has all the components, but not a heart component. And there are times where you and I, when it comes to this shame, we're sorry, we feel bad, we don't like the consequences, but there's not a change of heart. And that change of heart doesn't just happen with flipping a switch. Change of heart does, there's a process there. And sometimes we can't tell until later whether it was decaffeinated or caffeinated, just like Jim couldn't tell until 2 in the morning that it wasn't uh, decaffeinated. But later, and all of a sudden we find it has no traction. Saul, time and time again, would do something. He'd feel sorry about it. But nothing would change. There was no change of heart. David, on the other hand, has a change of heart. Interesting, even in the King James Version, when referring to Judas, you remember Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. We read it this way. This is what he said. This is how it's rendered. Which Judas, which had betrayeth him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. You go, wow, that's odd. I never thought Judas repented. See, it's that word. It's that word of being sorry. It's that decaffeinated repentance. His heart wasn't engaged, and he repented. On the other hand, there's caffeinated repentance, and caffeinated repentance looks this way. Caffeinated repentance conveys a change of one's mind and purpose in life's direction. When you and I have caffeinated repentance, it actually starts to show up on the outside, the way we interact with our world. Uh, it, again, it's not a switch, but, but things change. Your direction, your purpose changes. So all of a sudden, this repentance has traction in your life. 
It's just not feeling bad about it. It's just not a shame. It's just not a, a guilt that's just kind of grown and grown and grown until now you have this component of life where there's shame. There's actually a change. There's, there's a release. There, your, your mind is thinking differently. So as your mind thinks different, your purpose in life thinks different, your direction thinks different, you're less likely to go in that direction. You start to, you start to change. And so this caffeinated is just, is just so cool. Um, Peter writes about this when he says, you must repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That after time, your souls may know the refreshment that comes from the presence of God. We just sang that song about welcoming God's presence, welcoming the Holy Spirit, welcoming his presence into this place, but really uh, into our lives to have that awareness. And when you and I are a repentant people, when you and I regularly drink de- uh, uh, caffeinated repentance, we find that we change. And it's not a one-and-done kind of repentance. It's a repentance that just keeps going on. We keep converting. We keep changing. And as we change and as we grow, we find our awareness with God growing, and then we find that it refreshes our soul. In a sense, it catheterizes the uh, the interior, internal bleeding that is taking place in our soul. And that comes from being more and more aware of his presence. So all of us should desire when we are aware of a shame in our life, no matter what that is, to, to bring it to uh, mercy, to say, I want to find mercy. And to find mercy, there needs to be this caffeinated repentance piece to that. So I'd like you to turn over to Psalm 51, verse 1. That's uh, page 395 in those Bibles you'll find around you. And we're going to walk very quickly through Psalm 51, making a couple statements, and we're going to see how David uh, takes the shame of what he had been involved with and finds God's mercy and finds repentance and comes out the other side. Now, it's very interesting about this psalm. There's no mention of lying. There's no mention of murder. There's no mention of uh, sexual sins. There's no mention of what David did. It's, 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 that it's not on the page there. It's all about restoration. It's all about finding that mercy and, and how that repentance takes place. So no matter what shame you may be carrying, or maybe it's even being revealed to you in a moment like this, and you haven't thought about it for a while, and that's, again, not a, oh, no, oh, no, I wish I had kind of, like, not thought about this anymore. No, it, it's, it's good. Think about it, and then find God's mercy and be released from it. First thing we see is that there is a helplessness and a hopelessness on David's behalf. He's helpless. He's hopeless. He cannot fix this himself. He can't earn it. He can't buy it. He can't leadership himself through it. He's got all the power in the kingdom. There's there's nothing he can do about it. So what does he say in verse 1? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. He needs mercy. That's really the beginning place for all of us. 
when it comes to even figuring out faith and starting a relationship with God. We need mercy. But we need that mercy to, to continue on. We need to experience it on a regular basis. We used to sing a, sing a hymn that talked about new mercies every morning. We need them regularly. And it's great that what governs his mercy is his unfailing love. It's not just his commitment. It's because he loves you and me so much that he has this mercy for us. Blot out my transgressions. Get them so they don't interfere with our relationship. Because by myself, I am helpless and hopeless. And at first, that's a scary place to be. But to be helpless and hopeless in the hands of a loving God is actually a wonderful place to be. Next, as we kind of move through this, we see this idea of he needs to be soaked and scrubbed. He needs to be cleaned up. Not just surface, not just behavior. He needs it inside. He needs it all the way in. Shared with us before, but uh, my mother went back to college to get her associate's degree when I don't know, I was probably 15 or 16. And Saturday mornings was one of her classes. My father felt that this was the day to do cleaning of our rooms. And uh, he loved to, to make me clean my room on Saturday morning. No cartoons, no TV, and no nothing until that room was uh, cleaned. And uh, so I would go into my room. And uh, the first couple times I got the surface cleaned down, I would go down there and I would just let the vacuum cleaner run for 20 minutes. I just wouldn't do anything. I'd just turn it on and sit and watch it, you know, because I wasn't cleaning my room, but my dad was hearing it, so he was thinking I was cleaning it. I'd stuff everything under the bed, into the closet, everything like that. So when he would come in, he really didn't look at the floor too much, but he had heard the vacuum cleaner, so I was good to go. Well, one day he decided to look under the bed, and he just starts pulling stuff out, then he goes to the closet and starts pulling stuff out, and all the stuff is out there. Now he says, clean your room. When it comes to us being soaked and scrubbed, it's just not a surface cleaning. We need to let him go into the innermost places of our heart and soul. And we wouldn't let anyone else really go there, would we? But because of God's love, because of his mercy, we can let him go there. He loves us as a parent loves his child. And because of that, David is able to say in verse 2, wash away my iniquity, my sin, and cleanse me from my sin. Clean me up. Soak me and scrub me. Clean me with Hyssop, and I will be clean. That, that's the, a branch they would dip in their ceremony of uh, without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. Old Testament into New Testament, Jesus gives his love, shed blood, gives his life, shed blood on the cross. So they would, the priest would dip this branch and just sprinkle it around, cleaning everything. And David's saying, I need a thorough cleaning, and I will be whiter than snow. Down to verse 9 says, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. This isn't, this isn't him saying, 
Just look the other way, God. What this is saying is this is saying, make it so that my sins are cleaned up, that you've blotted away my iniquities. And sometimes you've seen these uh, movies, these documentaries where people are washing their clothes and they're beating them on the rocks. They're blotting them out. They're just, they're just wailing on them, trying to clean them. Uh, th- that's, what, that's what David is asking for. So hopeless, helpless, and then you say, God, give me a thorough cleaning. And John, Jesus' good friend, says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. They won't be held against us. And a part, again, of that repentance is a change in our heart is taking place. It's just not a cleansing, and then we're right back into it. We're, we're, our DNA, our operating system is starting to change. As a Christ follower, we're always in a state of change, in a state of growth. David goes on. He doesn't just stop there. He realizes that he sees himself for who he is, and he knows that he's seen sees and seen. He knows that God sees him. He sees himself. And because of that, it's just not clean me up and I'm all set. He's still troubled. He's still bothered by that. It it, it is just not an easy thing. He's wrestling. He's troubled. For I know my transgressions. I know my sin. I know what I've done. My sin is always before me. Jason talked about on the video, talked about not being able to sleep at night. It's sin is before him. He's troubled by it. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to be troubled by our sin. It's a good thing to be bothered by it. Not to go into despair forever, but it should register with us. It shouldn't be just an easy, you know, God, forgive all my sins, and on you're on your way, and it's no big deal. You need to understand, and David understands it, and he's troubled. And he's troubled also because he realizes who he's offended. He says in verse, the first part of verse 4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. We're going to say, wait a minute, there's Bathsheba. Wait a minute, there's Uriah. Her husband. Wait a minute. There's the baby. Wait a minute. There's all the, the. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And he says, "No. First and foremost, I've sinned against you. I've offended you, and that bothers me the most." I told you another story where I was working at a place and uh, I was hired to be there year round. I graduated from college. It was a big camp resort. I was hired to be program director, do marketing and all these kinds of things, and had worked through the summer, and to make a long story short, uh, it, just, it just, from our perspective, it wasn't going well, Cindy and I, and, and we were re- ready to, to leave, and, and he said, what do I need to change, and I gave him a list of things, and he was willing to change those, but we just didn't feel right. Now, looking back, God was stirring us not to work at a, at a campground, but he wanted us to, to be a part of a local church and, and, and serve there. So, so that's all going on, and, uh, and for the, the, the 
political culture of the camp. There's lots of employees. He didn't want me to tell anyone that I was leaving. And I told somebody. And he called me on it. And I was scared to say I had told so-and-so on it. And so I said, no, I've not told anyone. And he goes, that's funny. So-and-so told me that you're leaving. It wasn't a Christian camp, and they had even let me do church services on Sunday and all this kind of stuff. And shame, shame I felt. And then uh, afterwards, I, I wrote him a letter. I wish I still had the letter, but I wrote him this letter. This is, you know, he's 23. And in my letter I wrote, it was bad enough that I didn't have the guts. I, I was more afraid of you than afraid of, of offending the God I try to serve. Because I feel the weight of this more is that I've slapped him in the face than I've uh, done something against you. I shouldn't, I mean, he lied all the time, but that doesn't make me right. But, uh, but, but, but I was more bothered the fact that I had let God down, and I, and I wrote that in my, in my letter to him. You see, when you and I sin, when you and I are selfish, when you and I hurt somebody else, yes, there's an offense to that person, but the offense is so much heavier when it comes to the direction of God against you, you only have I sinned, says David. Then there's this idea of obvious, again, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are in the right, your verdict in just, in just, you're unjustified when you judge. He's just saying it's so obvious that I've done such wrong and it's against you. What's also interesting is that David uh, doesn't make any excuses. He, he owns. He has ownership for everything. First, when you read verse 5 of Psalm 51, you think he's kind of passing the butt. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You know, I, 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 this is just who I am. This is how I came out. But he's not saying that. He's saying, it's me. I've been that way since before I was born. I am broken. I am bent towards this kind of behavior. Some of us have a real time wrestling with that when we have little kids and go, how can my little baby be a sinner, you know, and all this stuff. I don't know about you, but uh, I, I never had to tell the kids, our three beautiful, nice little daughters, uh, you, you know, to be mean to each other. They could just do it. It was just like automatic. It was built in there. Sorry about that, Aunt Mariah. I can remember this one time. I heard this screaming down the playroom, and it's Sarah and Hannah screaming, and uh, they had done something to Mariah, and Mariah had one of those uh, phones, you know, those little phones, the Fisher-Price phones, and she's whipping it around like this, and they're like in the corner screaming, you know, and she's got them hostage, you know. You know. It's a pretty cool move, you know, a little... Uh, Braveheart their action, but, uh, but it wasn't cool. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, I didn't have to teach them that. They just, uh, that was Cindy's upbringing. No, I didn't have to teach them that. That was just, that was just built into who they were. And uh, David owns it. He owns it. 
We even see that as uh, Jason still kind of tries to come to terms with his shame. I don't know, just acting bad. And I, I always had a hard time acting good. So. Then um, someone comes up and shares a testimony. And, you know, you don't really get to hear people's stories a whole lot. And especially all of it, you know. And uh, I don't even remember what the story was that week. But I remember just being like, whoa, what? What is he is this really, his life was like that? You know, I just, it was crazy. And people going around the circle, everybody had a different problem. And everybody in this room was pretty down and pretty close to out. <laughs> and just, uh, you know, an overwhelming sense of hopelessness. But by the end of it, um, I couldn't help but be so filled with hope which is, is just weird, but in, in people sharing with their struggles, God really used it to, to reveal to me and I think to everybody else. I think that's how it works. See, there's something therapeutic about confessing your sins. Yes, you, you confess them to God. As he talks about it, there is this piece where you have a few close people they confess them to. I know in my own life, when I confess some of my sins to my closest guy friends. It helps me see the seriousness of them, and it also helps me stay accountable, because then they ask me about it. I've, I've welcomed them into the conversation. It, it's healthy. The person that conceals his secrets does not prosper. It eats them up inside. David goes on to talk about this idea of inside out in verse 6. You desire faithfulness even in the womb. You've taught me wisdom in that secret place. Inside, in the hidden places, there needs to be a matchup, exterior, interior. Yes, it's work. Yes, it's a battle. But, but we need to see that the inside and the outside match up. Said another way, 10 verses down, says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Basically, what David is saying, you don't just take pleasure in the external. It's not that David doesn't do those things, but the external needs to be an expression of the internal. There needs to be a matching up. Another word for that would we say it needs to be cohesive, it needs to fit together. Needs to be bonded. Verse 10, we read, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Make me clean inside and make my outside steadfast. Give me a resolve. Let the two match up. That's a part of the caffeinated repentance, a cohesiveness. He also wants to have confirmation that, he, that his relationship with God is real, that it's there. He, he says, do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. For those of us who are uh, Christ followers, New Testament Christ followers, this is an unusual concept for us because we believe and we have scriptures that uh, give evidence of that and we've seen it in our own lives that uh, once you've said yes to God, he comes and joins your life. The Holy Spirit lives with you, in you, through you. And so we believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't depart. 
We don't earn our relationship with God, so we don't unearn our relationship with God. He's, he's there. It sticks. He's good. But we definitely understand there are times where we're not aware of his presence, or we shut him out, or we box him in. For David, he remembered Saul. The Holy Spirit left Saul, so he's, he's afraid of that. But he also wants a confirmation. He wants to know that he's good with God. Likewise, when you and I repent, we want confirmation, and, and some of that confirmation will come that the Spirit starts to lead you, and you're sensitive. But at least in my life, there's been times where I want that, and I don't want that. And so the minute I, in a sense, unbox God, if I can say that, I box him right up. I want confirmation, confirm that his presence is there, and I'm responsive. Also, there's this idea that David, in his repentance, is captivated by God in his life. Verses like verse 8 says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. The pain, the inner bleeding, the brokenness. I want to hear joy. I want to be, I want to be captivated by you. Verse 12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me, captivate me, hold on to me. It's interesting that if you and I renew our, uh, our captivation with God, it makes following him easier. It's harder to take a list and just follow it and be a certain way. But when we're captivated by something and it owns our hearts, it's got us. Then, then the repentance is starting to really move. It's, we've talked about this before. Wherever you put your attention, your life seems to go. Every time I'm ready to buy a new car and I have a new model out there, all of a sudden I pick this car and I, I start seeing them everywhere. And I go, I never knew there were so many of these kinds of cars on the road. I see them everywhere. Drive Cindy nuts. Hey, did you see that car? There's the one. I like that color. What do you think of it? She's like, oh, give me a break. You know, and then another one, another one, another one, you know, and all this kind of stuff, because that's what's captivating me. You see, sin is a symptom, not the real problem. David was bored when he was on his porch. He was bored. He wasn't captivated by God. And that is probably the greatest warning for me personally is when I get bored with my relationship with God, with life, that's when I enter the danger zone. I'm looking for some little more adrenaline, some more little more energy, some more like, it's, and, and it just, it's just, it's a symptom that I, I go in a direction I shouldn't go. So if you're a Christ follower and you're wrestling with these things, renew, be repentant, use caffeinated repentance, but be captivated by God. Be in awe of God. I love when we do communion and we say that line, come to this meal with holy awe. Sometimes it becomes so familiar that we show contempt for it. Holy awe. And if you're not a Christ follower, if you're still trying to figure that out, and, until you're captivated, until you say yes to him, th this is going to be harder for you. But for those of us who know Jesus, have asked him into our life, walk with him, we need to realize that sin is a symptom, not the real problem.
And a part of this captivation, which is just amazing, is there's this verse that most of us uh, wouldn't think would be in there. It deals with being useful, that in verse 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. First, I go, well, what right does David have to be telling anybody anything about spiritual things? Look what he did. I think he's off the list for good. But he knows that when this repentance takes place, he can still be useful. And that is awesome. No matter what shame you're carrying around, what shame I'm carrying around, I can still be useful. I can still make a difference. I can still have something to offer. God still wants to use me and use you. And that's fantastic, and David sees that. And because of that, he just overflows. We read this, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of righteousness. Open uh, my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. There's this overflowing. He's captivated. He can't contain the joy. The guilt of bloodshed is that, that, he, that what he's done, and he's, he's going to be, he's going to overflow, that he's had grace. And we even see that in Jason's life. I really think that's when everything started to change because I I started feeling freer, you know? And it's funny because I, you know, I, I always believed in God, but, but didn't really trust him with everything. I thought this thing was too dirty, too dark to share with anybody. And, uh, you know, but once I trusted with him, you know, we started the road of, um, you know, just living a godly life, being community, being known. And, uh, you know, it feels good to be known. I felt the streets and the pavement burning off the youth from both my feet. I'm able to be free of those things because of, because of Jesus Christ, and now I'm, I'm a free man. I just, I don't want anything else to be first anymore. That's why I am second. And when our hearts are captivated, when they're overflowing, we naturally discover that we are second. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to have hard days. There's this broken-hearted joy in verse 17, we read, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. And we live in this tension. We live in this tension that there is this brokenness that is a part of us. We are not perfect in this chapter in life. Yet there's this joy, and we live in tension. There's a broken-hearted joy because we know we do mess up. That's not to give us permission to mess up. It's not to, be, to let it have excuses, but we live in this tension. 
that, uh, that, that we live in this brokenhearted joy, that, that, that we know that, that there's still pieces that still need to come in alignment. There's change that still needs to uh, take place. But when we have that broken spirit, when we have that humble heart, that contrite heart, God welcomes us. He doesn't put us off. When we understand who we are, he embraces us. So when you think about shame, when you think about your secrets, remember this. God uses shame, if you'll allow him to, to reclaim without blame. And that's really where we find David. The shame reclaimed him, and God didn't hold him it against him permanently. He was without blame. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the gift of these records of the life of David. We're thankful that uh, you didn't sanitize them, that you didn't clean them so much up so we couldn't see ourselves in his life. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the mercy you offer to each one of us. And Father, I just would ask that if there's anyone here that has, has not experienced your grace and your mercy, that this might be the day that they just reach out right from their hearts, right from now, and say, Lord, I, I need your forgiveness. I acknowledge my need. I want you in my life. I believe that you've taken care of my sin problem, that you can blot it out through the gift of your son, and that I choose to follow you, invite you into my life. And I pray that that person would start that new journey today and the shame would slowly disappear from their lives. Then for us who have known you forever, it seems, Lord, may we live a repenting life, a continually changing life, not living under the weight of our sin, but knowing that we have freedom and that freedom can be expressed on the outside of our lives each and every day. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.